got a little girl, she stays and step. Try to make a living by putting on ads, she got to step it up and go. Hey, yeah, yeah. We can't stand that at all. We got to step it up and go.
1991. I always like to, David, I always like to look up a person's education, and I know that you ended up getting a master's in journalism from the University of Texas and sometime back there in the, I guess, in the 80s is what I would guess. Uh, I did, yeah, 1985, University yeah. of Texas at Austin. And you've worked in some in Texas, and I think, and in Colorado, and then you came to Raleigh, and you, you've been with us for 30 years now. And, um, Just a, yeah, it'll be 30 years in uh, January. 28 of those years at the News and Observer. I, I finally left the paper last year. Right, right. And uh, had time to to write this book, which I've enjoyed because it's the, uh, you know, the, there's a music format that was on a lot of radio stations some years ago. You don't hear it much now. Called the music of your life, and right much of the music in this book that you write about is the music of my life and. A lot of my listeners and a lot of uh, our fellow citizens. Uh, uh, what if, if one person that you seem to have, if you don't mind the expression, kind of fallen in love with or seen as an important person is a man that I'd heard a lot about, but now I know a lot more about him because of you. And he's kind of the star of the, the first part of the book, and he keeps reoccurring. And that's a man named Charlie Poole. Talk about him a little bit. Late, great Charlie Poole. Um... He was a textile mill worker back in the 1920s who uh, was playing something very much like bluegrass a good 20 years before Bill Monroe is credited with kind of inventing bluegrass. But he uh, created a body of work and songs that uh, kind of are are still heard at bluegrass festivals today as standard of the genre. And um, he also was kind of an incredible larger-than-life figure. People still tell stories about what a character he was. Um, his group was uh, Charlie Poole and the North Carolina Ramblers, and he was definitely a rambling man. And uh, hard drinking, hard living, too. He uh, unfortunately drank himself to death before the age of 40, way back in 1931. But uh, for about the five or six years before that, he was one of the biggest recording acts in America kind of making old-time folk records. So, yeah, uh, Don't Let Your Deal Go Down Blues is sort of his, um, I guess you'd call it magnum opus. It was his first hit and his biggest, and uh, a song you still hear a fair amount today. Well, I had cogitated on a number of songs from your book. You and I had not talked about it, but of which ones to play, and we might work that into the schedule somewhere tonight, just a little bit of it, so our listeners will know what's, what's going on. But when I talked to David earlier today, I said, David, there's so much in this book, we'll never cover it all. But we would, I think you would like the listeners to um, know if they're considering buying a copy of Step It Up and Go, uh, what it covers. And as I said, it covers the music, the popular music history of North Carolina from about 1900 on. And by talking about Blind Boy Fuller and uh, Charlie Poole, we've talked about the subjects of the first two chapters. And, David, if you don't mind, can we kind of just trace down the rest of the chapters and take as much time on them as you want to? If you want to stop and talk about Arthur Smith, do that. Uh, is that okay? It would be my pleasure. Well, uh, Arthur Smith is the next one, and he's one that uh, definitely uh, occurred during, you know, I said the music of my life. I can remember reading an article about him when I was uh, just learning about music uh, circa the mid-'50s that said that the song that you're going to talk about, his, major, his signature song, Guitar Boogie, was the fastest-selling record 
ever up to that time. It was they couldn't keep him in the stores, and he was a, a native of Charlotte, North Carolina, and became much identified with Charlotte. And you know, a couple of years ago, I think it was the UNC Television Network uh, trotted out a lot of the old tapes of his morning shows and played them on Saturday evening on uh, Channel Four and the other UNC channels. And it was it was nice to see Tommy Fail and occasionally George. Uh, oh, Hamilton the Fourth and people like that. But uh, talk about uh, Arthur Smith a little bit. Arthur Smith was a wonderful guitar player. Uh, he kind of started out as a young person playing jazz, and there was always sort of an element to that in his guitar playing. But uh, he became known as a country star. Um, guitar Boogie was, is, uh, I believe, still one of the biggest-selling country instrumental records of all time. And uh, very influential. It's still kind of one of the first things uh, rock and country players learn to play. Uh, just very building blocks of the style. And um, Arthur Smith also wrote a lot of gospel songs, but his other big kind of contribution to culture that's well known is a song called Dueling Banjos from the movie Deliverance. Although when he wrote that song, it was called Feuding Banjo, and uh, he recorded it in the 1950s. Fast forward to uh, the early 1970s and the makers of the movie Deliverance uh, wanted to use that song and were under the mistaken impression that it was a public domain folk song, out, you know, not owned by anybody and that they could use it. So they recorded it without checking on that closely enough and it turned out Arthur Smith owned the copyright on it. And uh, he contacted them about that and was told, you know, you can't win. And he just laughed at him, took him to court and did in fact win. A very large judgment ownership of the song's copyright, some awards it won, and, uh, yeah, he cashed a very handsome check for that song every 90 days the rest of his life. And he was a significant mover and shaker in developing syndicated television programs, I learned. That's not uh, technically about music, but that was a way of, of uh, spreading the gospel, so to speak. I think he, he syndicated his show, and it was carried on 90 to 100 stations across the country. Yeah, he uh, was a real groundbreaker there and has not really gotten as much credit as he should. But um, a lot of syndicated country music shows you saw later, whether Hee Haw or Johnny Cash or Buck Owens, um, Arthur Smith was there first and kind of uh, pioneered, blazed the trail and showed you how it was done. Um, he was a visionary businessman, no doubt about it. He also ran a very successful recording studio. Uh, in Charlotte, it's the studio where James Brown recorded Papa's Got a Brand New Bag back in 1965. I like that story. One of the things you've got a lot of is really good stories. And, of course, you've talked to a lot of these people. But uh, James Brown, I think, called him up at like 4 o'clock in the morning and said, they told me, Mr. Smith, that I need to talk to you. And, uh, and he, he helped James get a brand new bag, I guess. Indeed he did. <laughs> <laughs> now we need to take a break. We're talking with uh, David Menconi, longtime uh, arts uh, columnist and music columnist. He's written a wonderful book. I've just enjoyed it. I was, I've already written three people down that I want to give it to. So there's your testimony for you right there. And he's not paying me anything. But I really enjoyed reading it, and I've picked up a lot of things uh, uh, just, just doing that. Uh, and we're going to talk next about the next chapter, chapter four, which is entitled Rocket Man. This will be after the break. This is called a tease. But it's about one of the really, 
people that I, I'm glad gets recognition now, Earl Scruggs uh, and the Burst of Bluegrass. That's coming up with David McConey on WPTF right after this. David McConey, that's Guitar Boogie. David? Yes, sir. That's Guitar Boogie. It is the Guitar Boogie. I wasn't going to play that tonight because I was going but I just didn't, didn't think after we talked about it, I could go on without listening to a little bit of it, so we have put that in there. Now we need to talk about the next chapter in your history of uh, North Carolina popular music from 1900 to the present, uh, Earl Scruggs. And uh, I remember one morning I was driving to Goldsboro many years ago, and something on NPR, they had a woman named Nancy Brown who had converted a whole bunch of classical music things to be played by the banjo, and you could buy her CD. And, uh, they, and the, the person who interviewed her said, you know, this is really great work, you know, classical music played for the banjo. What, what do you really want to do in life? And she said, pick like Earl. <laughs> and that started about always as good as anything, anything, I think. <laughs> Tell us about um, Earl Scruggs and bluegrass Earl music. Scru- uh, arguably the the greatest banjo player ever, um, and you, you get an idea of the breadth of his influence. Uh, and the bluegrass banjo is called Scrug style, and um, if the style of playing is named after you, and it's kind of the definitive building block of something, uh, he's, he's really accomplished something there. Um, New York Times reviewer once likened him to Paganini on the violin, Earl Scruggs on the banjo, and uh, yeah, he was he was something. He figured out a three finger style of picking. There were variations of that going on when he was growing up in the Carolinas. Some of them he heard on the radio, but uh, he figured out how to do that better, faster, cleaner than anybody else ever had. And um, when he joined up with Bill Monroe's Bluegrass Boys. He was like the last uh, missing piece to uh, fully turn what they were doing into bluegrass. Um, it was December 1945 at the Grand Old Opry in Nashville with his debut with uh, Bill Monroe's Bluegrass Boys, and that is commonly accepted as the date bluegrass was born. Uh, and you've just mentioned one thing that I want to commend you on. You give a good bit of credit to the thing that helped spread a good deal of this music after it came into existence, and that is some of the radio stations in North Carolina and indeed in America, and one that a lot of, in addition to our own station, WPTF, uh, was WBT in Charlotte, had a lot of these people. Uh, I think Earl was from Shelby or somewhere near there, and a lot of these people ended up on WBT along with Arthur Smith. Yeah, and um, I'd just like to note that it's a tremendous honor for me to be on WPTF to talk about this book and this history, given uh, the station's place in it. Um, WPTF was the last place that uh, the Monroe brothers ever played together. Um, Summer of 1938, and uh, rather than go on to Knoxville from Raleigh, where they'd been for a few months playing on PTF, uh, Bill Monroe chose to strike out on his own. And uh, so, yeah, WPTF was kind of the end of their partnership. And uh, those two stations also aired a program in the 1930s called uh, Crazy Barn Dance for uh, the Crazy Water Crystals Company. And uh, it was 
kind of a pioneering program of uh, the folk and old time pre-bluegrass and pre-country. You hear the Carter family and the Monroe brothers and all kinds of acts like that. The, the Maynard yeah. brothers who were a uh, mm-hmm. pair of twins. I, I don't know if you ever talked to, we had an engineer at WPTF who was there for 60 years. And he told me years ago that, that uh, Chet Atkins used to come with the, those groups that would come around. Uh, okay. You know, somebody would, like Crazy Water Crystals or Arthur White, would yeah. contract for somebody to come and play for six months. And one of the people that came with, uh, I don't know, maybe it was Crazy Water Crystals, was Chet Atkins. And he okay. played the violin, or uh, excuse me, fiddle. Uh, but after he, he did his bit, and those shows were on early in the morning. They were all over by 6 o'clock. He would go eat breakfast at some restaurant, and then he would come back and practice his guitar for another six hours. And we all know that he got pretty good at it. He did get pretty good at it. <laughs> That's remarkable. I wish I wish I'd uh, talked to that fella. That would have been cool. Well, I've heard that story at a couple of places, so I sort of believe it's true. So, uh, so you, it will be our our gift to you. And if you if you, <laughs> if you have a if you change the edition or do something else, uh, uh, but the, the, those uh, traveling groups, there were a bunch of them, and, and Platt and Scruggs did Martha White, and they, they sort of made that famous, and they were one of the people that, as you will, you know, brought it to the college generation during the, the folk revival in America, and I think it's just about time for us to take a look at that, too. The American folk revival comes to North Carolina. Well, first, uh, there's there's a chapter before that. There's, oh, uh, yes, I see gospel and rhythm five. and blues. Okay. The Five Royals, uh, Winston-Salem group, and uh, one of the great, important, uh, but unfortunately not well-remembered R&B groups of the 50s, of the 1950s, uh, the music evolution from gospel to R&B to soul and eventually funk. And uh, the Five Royals started out as the Royal Sons Quintet, the gospel group, and um, they made some very fine recordings that unfortunately weren't selling. And uh, at their label's encouragement, they decided to uh, start doing secular recordings, change their name to the Five Royals, and uh, hit it kind of big. They had a couple of number one R&B hits, and uh, they really blazed the trail. They were right up there with any of the early R&B groups in terms of importance and popularity. Let's, and, let's uh, stop they, here, if we can, and take what okay. what I said about the folk revival to be a kind of tease for what's going to come up after the break, because we are to the point, hey, we're halfway through the program already, and we need to pause to check the news at 9.30. Our guest tonight is David uh, Mancone, uh music critic, and we'll be back to talk about his new book right after this. Well, we're talking with David Menconi for a long time, the music critic and arts critic at the News and Observer, and he has written a book uh, that is called Step It Up and Go, and it has a long, I have to read the subtitle to you, but it's the one that tells you the story. The subtitle is The Story of North Carolina Popular Music, and we're walking our way through it tonight, chapter by chapter, and the chapter that pops up in front of us right now is entitled The American Folk Revival comes to North Carolina. Now, when I think of the folk revival of this period, I think of Tom Dooley, which, of course, has a North Carolina connection. But the Kingston Trio was not connected to North Carolina in any particular way. 
but uh, uh, a leader in the folk revival was, in fact, and it's a person I know David will like to talk about, David Menconi, that is, and it's Doc Watson. David? Doc Watson, uh, also one of the greats. Um, played guitar as well as anybody ever has. Uh, blind man from Deep Gap, North Carolina. Very humble man. Uh, you would have a hard time finding anybody who would have an unkind thing to say about him. But uh, he lived in North Carolina his whole life, traveled the world, one of the most acclaimed musicians ever. And, um, yeah, you know, he had relatives who, who knew the real-life people in the song, Tom Dooley. So he had a, a personal connection to that, which was a real draw with the folk revival folklore type who were going around looking for folks, and they found him in 1960. And the, 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 the music festival that he helped create to honor his son, who was killed in an accident, has been a great, I think, promoter of, uh, of traditional music in, from North Carolina. The Merrill Fest, I think it's called. Merrill Fest, indeed. Um, it marked its 30-year anniversary in 2018, and uh, kind of one of the signature events on the acoustic and folk and Americana circuit. Um, it can be a career-making event. Um, the Avid Brothers kind of launched themselves to stardom back uh, about 15 years ago when they played Merle Fest. They, they came in and as playing unpaid gigs and uh, just wound up playing seven times over the course of the weekend anywhere they could and were kind of the talk of the festival. So lightning will strike and uh, people get discovered there. I was listening to the radio a lot when I was in junior high and in high school, and the station that I listened to after 1959 was what we call Kicks. And I don't know whether it was uh, Charlie Brown or not, who I think is occasionally on the beach for one of our stations. It may be our sister station on 850, which is, is a lineal descendant of Kicks. But they started talking about something called beach music. And this was when we had all that surfing stuff going on out in California, you know, Jan and Dean and the Beach Boys. And I thought, well, that's what it is. Well, it turned out that that is not what it is. And a genre of, uh, of popular music that really belongs to the Carolinas uh, appeared on the horizon. And maybe for the first time ever, David, you can provide us with a definition for what, it, what beach music is. I sort of believe it involves jukeboxes and music that would not be played on the radio, but that you could go to the pavilion at Atlantic Beach and dance to. Well, there you go. It was it, it started out as R&B, um, much of it of a rather bobby nature. This was in the years after World War II. And uh, the most of the songs in what come to be known as the beach music canon have a certain tempo, 110 to 130 beats per minute which just happens to be just right for shag dancing, which is um, the state dance of both North and South Carolina. And uh, beach music started out as this kind of forbidden fruit thing, coastal towns in the Carolinas, when uh, white kids who were down with their families vacationing uh, late at night, they'd slip across the tracks to the um, kind of R&B clubs over uh, in the African-American parts of town. Uh, just to listen to records on the jukebox and cop moves and things like that, and it turned into this cool little subculture. And then it went to college when uh, that generation grew up and went off to school, and they took the music with them, and you had lots of scenes like 
in the movie Animal House when that uh, R&B band played the frat house. That was kind of what the beach music circuit was like then. Do you have a favorite beach music song? Favorite beach music song? I'm only uh, asking you so I can tell you mine. Uh, I'd say, you know, uh, hard to go wrong with uh, Billy Ward and the Domino's 60-Minute Man. It's kind of uh, yeah. regarded as the ultimate beach song. But a, there's, there's a, a lot of great ones. Yeah. Uh-huh. Well, I like Rainy Day Bells uh-huh. by the, the Globetrotters or, or anybody else that thinks it or Miss Grace. Uh, I think that's, hard, that's hardcore right. beach music. Yeah. That is hardcore. The, the cool thing about beach is it really is this kind of parallel universe where a lot of songs and groups that never really hit it all that big on the mainstream charts are part of the pantheon, you know, like the Times, uh, Miss Grace. One of the all-time great beach songs, but uh, never did much on the pop chart. Same with the Embers, one of the all-time great beach bands. Uh, they've got lots of songs in the countdown of the beach music jukeboxes, but nothing on the billboard, I don't think. And along uh, on the coast of North and South Carolina, uh, you find the beach uh, shag hall, uh, shag halls of fame. I, I think I told you the story about one of my mates, a uh, guy I knew uh, who we went through many years of schooling in Goldsboro. When he passed away, he listed that he was a member of the Hall of Fame, the Beach Music Hall of Fame in, uh, in Ocean Drive, I think, which was one of the places that one wanted to go. There may even be a song about Ocean Drive, as a matter of fact. But uh, mm-hmm. uh, this, is, this is kind of, a, you, I think, a unique thing for the Carolinas and maybe drifts down a little bit into Georgia or somewhere like that. But uh, you have an excellent chapter on that and uh, and deal with the groups like the Embers and so on who uh, made the transfer from black music to white music. Yeah, and uh, groups like the Embers are kind of the ones keeping the music going into the 21st century. Uh, the, the Embers still exist today. The membership is completely turned over uh, 62 years later after they started. They started in 1958. The last original member, um, Bobby Thompson, uh, finally retired a couple of years ago when uh, he had to have knee surgery, but he still basically runs the business part of it. Up to that point, he hardly missed a gig in 50-plus years and was still driving the bus. (laughs) And you got to talk to This wonderful thing about you is you were there for, I'd say, for about 50% or more of the book. You literally talked to the people and lived through interviewing them while they were doing their thing. You know, you had some good bit of history at the beginning with Charlie Poole and Blind Boy Fuller, but a lot of these later acts, uh, you were you were watching them. Uh, the chapter that we're dealing with is called Breaking Color Lines at the Beach, but a couple of people who are not necessarily identified with the beach have to be mentioned here because they're from North Carolina. One is Clyde McFadder, and the other is the guy who's... Uh, song was used in the, the Royal Wedding a couple of years ago, Benny King. Yeah, they were uh, at different times, both the lead singers of uh, the Drifters, another group from the beach music pantheon. And um, yeah, they're both in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and all the beach music halls of fame, too. They're two of the best. Clyde McFadden was, of course, from Durham, and Benny King was born in Henderson, although he didn't, he didn't grow up there. I think he moved north when he was very young. Uh, yeah. 
the the next chapter I had to turn the page there the the eight track era of rock and roll and uh, you you spent some time with a group called Nantucket and you, there's a story to be told there about making a group work in North Carolina and that's that's where you are right now David yeah um, Nantucket they started out as a beach band oddly enough um, back to gold formed in Jacksonville North Carolina in the late sixties. Um, but they quickly changed direction into more of a, of a, became more of a rock band, but they never really stopped being a beach band either. They always had a horn section, always had danceable rhythms. Um, and they had a good long run, made a couple of records for, uh, Epic Records. And, uh, you know, they were in the rock star finery, the leather and lace and whatnot. Um, Never quite broke out beyond the Carolinas. They were huge around here, a big, big regional hit, but that just never quite translated beyond the state. But uh, they're in the North Carolina Music Hall of Fame, and rightly so, and the version is still together, and they'll still play the occasional beach song, too, like You Need a Ride to Raleigh was a fairly sizable beach hit that they did about eight or ten years ago. So if you're here, you can see Nantucket. You should do it. We need to take a break now, but... And I'm going to give. I'm going to get out of your way and see what you can do with the rest of this because we we're just about running out of time. But but you you are the person who spent his time with it over the last couple of years, and so you you can folk find the focus for what has occurred in in the most recent years. But I am I do want to commend you on mentioning one of my favorite songwriters, and that is Mr. John D. Loudermilk, who passed nice. away. In 1916, I think, but he had he has an amazing number of hits for an amazing number of artists, and the one that you did mention in your book was the one that he made for himself was a song called "Sitting in the Balcony" uh, when he was posing as Johnny D. He he was from Durham, of course, but you yeah. you listeners can find out more about John D. Loudermilk right after this. David McCauley is our guest tonight, longtime editor, arts editor, and music critic for the News Observer. He has a new book out called Step It Up and Go, the story of North Carolina popular music. And I don't get any, any, any kickback on this, but I recommend this. If you like our Friday night trivia show when we play music, you'll like this book. And it's, it's a good sweep across the history of popular music in North Carolina from 1900 to the present, and we'll tell you who a lot of the names are. And David Manconi, I want to, I commended you for having John D. Loudermilk in your book, and there's one other name here that if, if you have the name in your book, you should put it on your shelf. You should buy it, and it's Link Ray. Ah, yes. From, uh, from Dunn, and uh, one, of the, one of the great guitarists in, in the Rock Pantheon. It is a true crime that he is not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame yet. Um, they really need to do something about that. Well, you know, That's I kept hearing guys. about him, and I could not find any information on him. I think maybe one member of his family was in the military or something, and that's why he lived in Dunn, which is, by the way, where my wife came from. And uh, uh-huh. But I kept hearing about Rumble, and actually somebody at the station went out and bought a, a CD, and I read the story of his, you probably did, of his sticking the pencil in the speaker. Yeah. To, to get the rumble sound, but they, he's had a, apparently had a lot of influence, and people like Bob Dylan make references to it. 
And uh, also Jack White from the White Stripes has uh, been very clear about his debt. And uh, Chapel Hill Southern Culture on the Skid, kind of a latter-day rock band. Uh, they, they took a lot of influence from him, too. Are there, is there anybody else in particular? I, I said I was going to let you walk through. I was going to play a song. But one of my, I recently was had to have some physical therapy, and my physical therapist was a new North Carolinian. That is, he weren't from here, but he, he'd come and he <laughs> liked it. And he asked me if North Carolina had a song like West Virginia, you know, Country Roads Take Me Home. Yeah. And uh, and I said, well, the best thing I can think of is Carolina in My Mind by James Taylor. And I was thought about playing that tonight, but we, we need, I'd rather have time for you to talk. But uh, that, I think, is kind of, as you point out, our unofficial state song. I'm also very fond of uh, the Kruger Brothers, Carolina in the Fall. Um, that's, that's another nice one. They're uh, immigrants from Europe, and that song's about traveling the world and then coming to North Carolina and instantly connecting with it as a place that feels like home. They like it's their trees you know, when they have beautiful colors. And, you know, I've never heard that, so my first assignment after we end the program tonight will be to find that. Carolina in the fall, okay. And then you've got, well, a person who's getting a lot of attention lately, Nina Simone. Yeah, she and um, Kruger Brothers, in fact, are and probably in a chapter together um, called Songs of Immigrants and Emigrants, um, people who came and people who who left and people who stayed. Um, Nina Simone was a native of Tryon, North Carolina, west of Charlotte, and um, born in uh, 1938, grew up in difficult circumstances and, uh, you know, confronting the Jim Crow era and whatnot, uh, went off to become a classical pianist. And that plan was derailed fairly early on, so she had to start playing bars and singing pop songs, which she didn't want to do. But uh, she changed her name. She was born Eunice Lehman and uh, knew that her preacher mother would not approve of her playing the devil's music. So that's when she became Nina Simone, and uh, one of one of the great sort of unclassifiable singers of the last century. And she finally, belatedly, got in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame uh, a couple of years ago. You've got a, a subsection of Chapter 14 called Jasmine, and you've got two people that I imagine most people don't know, don't know they're from North Carolina, Simonius Monk and John Coltrane. Right. They uh, they both left at early ages, especially Thelonious Monk. I believe he was uh, five years old, maybe not even, uh, when his family moved away from Rocky Mount. And uh, he did not come back to his state much. There's only evidence of one gig he played in his native state in Raleigh at the Frog and Nightgown in 1970. He had a week-long engagement there, and it might have been the only time he played here. But uh, one of the uh, signature pianists in jazz and uh, had a very unique individual piano style, but also a noted composer um, who left behind some of the most important songs in the jazz canon. And then John Coltrane, of course, uh, nobody's played in saxophone better before or since. Did anybody so. that you ran across, and you probably talked to him yourself, talk nice about Paul Montgomery? Mm, I know that Rob Watson mentioned, mentioned that he, uh-huh. he, Paul taught, taught him how to play some part of the guitar. And, and uh, yeah. he, you mentioning the Frog and Night Gun made me think of him. And, uh, 
he apparently was a pretty good jazz pianist and accompanied a woman named Carol Sloan a lot. Yeah, um, you know, the, the, the great thing about North Carolina music, you could do another book just as long as this one um, with a completely different cast of characters that are equally good, and uh, he was one of them. And uh, he pops up in the story kind of tangentially, the one I told, like the Doc Watson chapter, but uh, had a fine career in his own right as well. Yeah, well, he I, I had him on a couple of times when he was alive, and he, of course, all the children in Eastern North Carolina knew him as Uncle Paul, but it seems like everybody mm -hmm. else knew him too. So uh, uh, he, he apparently was a pretty nice guy. And I, I'm, I'm throwing you curveballs, but we, but I did want to at least mention him. Robert Moog, I didn't know he was from Asheville. Yeah, a native New Yorker, but. He was somebody else who came to North Carolina um, and just instantly fell in love with it uh, around Asheville, and he considered Asheville his spiritual home the last uh, 30 years of his life and um, moved his business there, and uh, the, the Moog factory and museum and everything is uh, still in Asheville today, even though he's been gone for 15 years. Well, you know what? We have used up our time. I, I get so interested in the show sometimes that I forget to look at the clock. But, David, I want to thank you for being with us tonight. I, I'm, I'm going to call you after the program is over back for just a second, if I may. But I want to thank you. And let's say your book is entitled Step It Up and Go, The Story of North Carolina Popular Music. It is, I take it, in the bookstores right now. And, uh, yes, sir can recommend it without reservation. Just go on down. It's published by UNC Press. If they don't have it, they can get it, and it will be 